Welcome back to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy. It's been a little longer than usual since our last episode. I apologize. The film that's bringing us back is Lorelei, written and directed by our wonderful guest today, Sabrina Doyle, who is, as I record this, finally about to see her film debut at Tribeca. It technically debuted there last year, but some things happened last year that you may have heard about, and Tribeca, like most film festivals, couldn't do any screenings in person. Lorelai stars Pablo Schreiber as an Oregon biker who gets out of prison and reunites with his ex, played by Jenna Malone, who has three kids, none of them with him. It's about their struggle, but also their beautiful moments, because Doyle is very clear that she wanted to make a blue-collar fable that didn't feel cloying or tragic. She gets very strong, moving performances out of Schreiber and Malone, as you might expect, but also out of the three young actors who play the kids. Parker Pasco Shepard, Amelia Borgerding, and Chancellor Perry. If you're a filmmaker casting young actors, or just a big film fan, you may want to remember those names. And now here's Sabrina Doyle, writer-director of Lorelei, appearing at Tribeca this Saturday. So Sabrina Doyle, welcome to Movie Maker. It's an honor to get to talk with you. I really enjoyed Lorelei. And congratulations on Tribeca. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to finally be here in New York. Um, a year on, we were supposed to premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020. And then with weeks to go, COVID happened. And, you know, it was heartbreaking, of course. Um, but we're so grateful to Tribeca for kind of inviting us back, inviting all the 2020 films back. It's a massive logistical feat to do sort of to stage two years worth of festival in one. So I'm really grateful to them. Have you gotten to actually sit down and watch some films with an appreciative diehard audience? It's been amazing. Yeah, it's been, they've, they've, got these incredible outdoor venues that are by the water so they're all kind of waterside venues so you've got the water on one side and an amazing New York skyline and then and then a movie screen on the other so I've seen quite a few films yeah I've been to see films most nights it's been great um it's wonderful to be back at the movies was there a point when you thought this may be it I may be watching things on my laptop from now on um I, I did watch a lot of films on my laptop during the pandemic um I mean, I just fundamentally believe in the power of cinema, though. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, everyone was sort of saying this this might be the death knell of cinema, the theatrical experience that is. But, but you know, I mean, I just think back to kind of, you know, the, the, the experience that made me want to be a filmmaker was seeing Apocalypse Now. Um, when it was reissued, I saw it on the big screen and it was a very profound experience for me. And it was the, the experience of seeing it in a cinema on the big screen and... I remember the precise moment, it was right at the beginning of Apocalypse Now when you have the shots of the helicopters flying um, past the jungle and you, you're hearing the opening strains of This Is The End by the doors. And then you hear the words, this is the end. And at that precise moment, the jungle explodes into flames at, at you know, time to the same, to the precise moment of those lines. And I had the thought, I mean, I'd never sort of thought about what a filmmaker does before, but I had the thought, oh, someone engineered those two and planned for those two things to happen at that precise moment together to have this emotional effect. And that, that someone, you know, someone made that happen, that kind of coincidence with those two things. And that's what a filmmaker does. They sort of engineer these moments to sort of create emotion. And it was being in the theatre and experiencing that that made me want to be a filmmaker. So I just, I think being in cinemas is a profound experience. And I've been going back to cinemas, actually, even before this festival, um, Tribeca, I, I've, 
you know, I've been to see quite a few films. I, I went as soon as cinemas were open. I, you know, I went to see anything. I mean, I just wanted to get into the movies and the movies were full, you know, people were there. So it was great. That was in London where you're from? No, that was in LA. Oh, um, yeah, but, um, but I have, I've, se I've seen movies this whole pandemic. I mean, I, I went to the Deauville American Film Festival back in September, which is where we actually ended up doing our, our first live screen, first screening in front of a live audience. So that was a French audience. And I love, you know, I love French audiences. They're such cinephiles. Actually, the organizers of the festival did say to me after the screening, they said it was incredible. I mean, it was a sort of thousand person movie theater and it was full. I mean, with a bit of social distancing, but effectively full. Yeah. And it was incredible. I mean, I was so worried that it would be half empty because of COVID. And that, but, but the French are such cinephiles, they all showed up for the movie. And the festival organizers sort of said to me afterwards, they said, oh, they really liked your movie. And I was like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, yeah, French audiences let you know if they don't like your movie, believe me. <laughs> um, they will be very vocal. And I was like, God, I mean, thank you. Thank God that you didn't tell me that before the screening. I would have been so nervous. Well, you kind of get into an America that I think David Lynch gets into too, which is kind of this blue collar romanticized very beautiful but very occasionally violent and real version of america and my wife is you're irish your father is irish and your mother's italian i believe yep very american very american combination <laughs> yeah my wife is a child up in london yeah <laughs> grew up in london yeah my, my wife is a child of irish immigrants and they have a love of that same version of America. That is really what they think of as America, bikers, uh, diners, Elvis. Is that the version of America that you were drawn to? Oh my God, that's so interesting. Um, I grew up listening to, um, Irish people love country music. Um, so I grew up listening to a lot of country music, which is very, you know, American country music actually, because the Irish really love that. And so through my sort of, my dad and my, uncles and aunts on my dad's side, um, that was something that I kind of grew up with. My uncle was obsessed with Elvis um, and sort of, um, I, yeah, I had an uncle who was completely obsessed with Elvis. So every, you know, every Saturday night when he babysat us, um, so my parents could have a date night, we would watch um, an old VHS tape of Elvis in Hawaii every Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's the version of America that's in, that's in Lorelei, but, um, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think that there's a kind of, there's a sort of melancholy in that music that I think comes through in Lorelei, a sort of a yearning for something better, maybe. And I, you know, I think the Irish are kind of, there's such a sort of, there's such a sort of strong working class migrant history that kind of, I think, that infuses Irish culture and Irish, the Irish sort of sensibility, this sort of idea of, you know, going you know going a long way away being a long way away from home and kind of and working very hard to to make it and having this yearning for home and this yearning for kind of belonging um so i think there's, there's definitely some of that in in Lorelei. and i think look i mean it's interesting when i was thinking about Lorelei, and i was thinking about what kind of films were in, inspiring to me in terms of tone i mean there are a lot of films that i that i had in my head but one of them was was um paris texas which mm -hmm. you know I mean, it's a very quintessential Americana film, but it's by a European filmmaker. And so, you know, I think we do, you know, we grew up part of, part of the dream life that we have as, as people growing up in Europe, um, part, of, part of the sort of, part of what sparks our imagination are these American movies, these faraway places that kind of, and so, you know, obviously my, <laughs> 
my my version of the US is a version that I dreamt about before I even saw it, you know, before I'd even ever been here. So, and I think that's the same for a lot of filmmakers, but it, you know, it takes up a big space in our imagination, I think. Um, yeah. The US, the West, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you got it right. I mean, it feels very real. And some of the beats of the story and some of the things that happen just feel very authentic and not forced. I mean, especially the first half of the movie, it really just unfolds and you're sort of, as a viewer thinking, when is something really bad gonna happen? Because we're trained that way. Um, but I just really enjoyed getting to know these people and they felt authentic and lived in and real. Yeah, thank you. Um, part of that, I think, I mean, obviously you have, I mean, obviously that is down to the incredible actors that I had and I'm so very grateful to Pablo and Jenna for coming onto this small indie, but you know, Pablo grew up in the Pacific Northwest. That was kind of his, his, where he grew up, his childhood. He grew up sort of between um, Seattle and Vancouver. So that's kind of, that was his world. And, and, and Jenna was actually living in the Pacific Northwest when we shot the movie. Um, she was living up in, up in Washington state. So, um, so yeah, yeah, she was living, um, not anymore, but at the time she was. So, um, so I think that they kind of understood um, they, they knew the area and I, I made sure that I got to know the area. So it was, you know, I used to be a journalist before I was, before I, you know, finally made it happen as a filmmaker, but, you know, the first job I had after college was journalism and, and I, you know, developed a kind of research ethos and rigor from that, from that job. And so it was, you know, I was like, how do I find my way into this story, which isn't, you know, ultimately, I mean, I understand, I come from a very blue collar background and a very blue collar family. And I understand that kind of, inherently the dynamics of that kind of family, um, working class family, but um, you know, that was, that's in a very different cultural context back in the UK. And so, and so I wanted to understand what that looked like over here. And I'd been in LA a long time, but definitely, you know, that's its own bubble. And so I just did lots of trips. I, I, I traveled up and down between LA and Oregon for about a year and a half before shooting the movie, looking for locations and just also speaking to people who, who kind of lived the kinds of lives of people in, in the film. So people who'd been to prison, people who were unemployed or underemployed, people living in rural areas or small towns. Some of them, lots of them are in the movie because we, you know, we made friends and we kind of, you know, we invited them to be extras. And then we made friends in the, in the biker community as well. And the reason we were able to pull off all those big biker set pieces is because we, you know, on our budget, you know, which was not high, um, we were able to do that because of because people came out for us and bought their bought their bikes, which they're very proud of actually. And they, everyone was, even it's funny, like all the bikers that are in the movie, they were I think they were more excited for their bikes to be in the movie than for themselves to be in the movie. Like that's how proud they are of their bikes. So, um, so I, you know, I was just able to kind of ask questions about you know that culture, the the sort of the motorcycle culture, the MC culture. Um, um, and get sort of answers from the horse's mouth, which was which was lovely. So I think there was a there was a lot of research that went into it, and you know, like many months finding locations and just driving around small towns and discovering stuff. You know, they, they, those were all found locations and found, you know, and, and extras that kind of that we would never have been able to get if we had shot somewhere like LA. You know, these were people sort of, you know, you can you know these were people whose histories, whose lives you can read on their faces, and I think that that kind of really helps to feel the the film feel lived in. The years you spent in journalism, did you know going into journalism that your ultimate destination was film or did you, what, why journalism? It, um, it was an accident. Um, it was, I mean, it ended up being a sort of 
you know, profound and important experience. But I always, you know, I think I figured out in my last year of college that I wanted to be a filmmaker and, um, but I didn't know how to do it. So I, 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 I was watching a lot of Kieślowski films at the time and I, I decided to go off and shoot a film in Poland on a frozen lake in Poland um, called Polanov. Mm. Um, and, that, you know, I'm still really proud of that film. And I think it's still probably my favorite thing I've done um, just because I did it, for, you know, out of pure, just a pure sort of sense of storytelling instinct. You know, I hadn't learned anything, but my, I let my instincts guide me, which I think is important. And you can, you know, it's, it's I have to keep reminding myself that, I'll, that you know, you know, I, I, I sort of, speaking to my nieces and nephews, they're such, you know, natural storytellers. And I think we are natural storytellers as humans. And I think you can learn certain rules about storytelling that kind of, you know, the, the, the way it should be done. But I think, but sometimes I think can feel a bit, you know, artificial. And I, it, I think with that film, I just sort of acted from a place of instinct and directed from a place of instinct. So I made that film and it, you know, it did well for a first film. It won a prize, the first prize at the first festival it screened at, and it was purchased by Arte, the, um, you know, the pan-European cultural network and broadcast on that network and it did well, but I didn't know how to, you know, I came, I came from a back, you know, my whole, my whole family are manual workers and kind of, you know, work in a very different sector of the economy than, than the one I was moving into. And so I just didn't know how to turn that initial success into a career into filmmaking. And so I, I happened upon this job in journalism um, and it was fun. It was, you know, it was a form of storytelling. And I also kind of was able to kind of develop, you know, get used to the sound of my own voice and meetings and kind of, you know, develop that confidence. And so it was great. And I did it for a number of years, but I always knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And, um, but I think it's ultimately proved helpful because I've, I've got this kind of grounding now in, you know, in, you know, I have a sort of, general knowledge that I never had before kind of and a, a sense of like lots of different communities and that you know and lots of different perspectives on stories that I would never have had if I hadn't been a journalist but but I think it was always my intention to kind of to become a filmmaker and then that's why I decided to come to the US in, in 2010 I, I, I knew I needed to make a sort of a very sort of firm commitment to, to filmmaking and so I you know you know there's nothing there's nothing more committed than traveling halfway across the world to do something so I came to the U.S. and and went to AFI to do the, to do my master's in filmmaking. There's something journalistic filmmakers do that I really appreciate uh, that I think is at this point kind of a I hate the word controversial as a journalist you might hate the word controversial too because it doesn't really mean anything it just means people disagree but perhaps a, a, a thing that some people will challenge which is you just present things as they are. And you don't, I don't think in this movie, you do a lot of moralizing, you do a lot of this is good and this is bad and a lot of finger pointing. You trust the audience to figure it out and to figure out where the journeys are. Was that a really key part of your, of your writing process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was actually, thank you um, for seeing that. Um, um, you know, I mean, I think it was important. I, I, you know, I think for me working within this genre as well, um, you know, this genre of kind of, you know, showing hard up Americans, hard up people, um, you know, in their communities. I, I, I really wanted to kind of, you know, I feel that sometimes films set in those, those types of communities, um, you know, they fetishize poverty. They kind of use a documentary type aesthetic um, to sort of stake a claim to authenticity, but you know they're still they're still sort of manufactured and they're still sort of you know 
pieces of fiction ultimately. And, you know, I just wanted this film, Lorelei really is about sort of interiority and dreams and surviving. And I just, I, knew, I wanted it to be neither devastating um, or uplifting. You know, I wanted, I didn't want, I wanted to sort of avoid kind of oversimplified narratives of, of you know, victimhood or individual triumph against adversity. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, I call it a sort of blue collar. It's funny because it, it, it is, there is a sort of fable-esque quality to it as well. I mean, it is very grounded and it is very um, observational in point, but I also wanted to kind of foreground the dream life of the characters and the kind of their ability to sort of, you know, dream big and imagine a better tomorrow. And, and so I think, you know, even though it does feel very grounded in part, it, that is disrupted by the, by the dreams and, you know, literally by the dreams that Dolores has and then Wayland at one point ends up having. And I call the film a kind of blue collar fable because you know why shouldn't working class people have their own fables why do they always need to be tragedies so um you know that was kind of that was that that you know because it, you do have two modes in the film and two tones and one one is the sort of observational kind of seeing the family dynamics play out and then you have the the dream sequences which which feel you know so you know which i feel very strongly about um some people feel they belong to a different film but I, I firmly think that they belong to this film because I, I, you know, it was very important for me to show the dream life of the characters. I, I'm always bothered by those criticisms where they say it feels like a different film because it's like, well, then you should go make that film. Um, <laughs> like this is the film that you, the director wanted to make and this is what you made. So it's, you know, there's one thing I wanted to ask about. I, I didn't know how much I should read into it Pablo Schreiber's character has this iron cross, um, which doesn't seem striking to me that a biker who's gone into prison um, and spent 15 years there who's white would spend, would come out with an iron cross, which is, I guess, a hate symbol. Did you, and, and obviously he has a journey and he undergoes a lot. Um, and we see some, we sort, I found it very interesting to watch him deal with black people, particularly. Um, because I wanted to know, is this guy racist? Is this guy, if he ever had those beliefs, how much does he still hold them? And I think we obviously see this character evolve, but should I, am I reading too much in the Iron Cross? Um, the Iron Cross is interesting. The, um, it's a very common um, tattoo in that community and it's not necessarily a hate symbol, although it can be. We did a lot of research into tattoos and we, we took the decision to, to give Wayland tattoos that were not hate symbols ultimately because, mm. but that could be, that was sort of, you know, but that were definitely, but that were definitely part, that would definitely indicate that he was part of a community that certain, certain members of that community might, might engage in those sort of ideas and those ideologies, those are sort of, um, so that he would be adjacent to it, but yeah. not necessarily have kind of, you know, fully, you know, fully become subsumed by that himself. And I think, you know, you know, we, I mean, and I went back and forth on like how deep into that he'd gone in prison because the reality, I mean, look, it, he, he's in Oregon, which is very white and the prisons in Oregon are pretty white as a consequence. I mean, everything in Oregon, I think is pretty white. It's just a white state. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, obviously in prison, 
people do cluster into groups often on the basis of of race and so you know I certainly think that that is something that he would have been exposed to in prison may have sort of participated into some degree in prison um and I think you know you see you see a couple of moments in the screenplay where he you know he, he obviously has a reaction to Dodger that he doesn't have to the other children mm-hmm. and he he obviously is you know with with the hardware store owner at the beginning he he's you know not not I mean you you see there's a, there's a flicker of something on his face right like a flicker of um that it that sort of sets you up for the Dodger scene to come but I didn't you know I think it was important for it would be a long way for the character to, to travel to to have gone from a place of pure hate to a place of love which is ultimately where he ends up at the end of the film for the for Dodger and for all the children um, um, who are children that you know he would not ever have you know he becomes a father in ways you know ultimately mm. but not in the way he ever might have imagined he would have become a father and the children are children that he would not have ever have imagined as his own children and yet he's learned to kind of love them and I think I think I you know to make that arc you know credible I think it was important to have to bridge some kind of gap but not too big of a, a gap if that makes sense um so yeah. you know but it's it was tough because I do you know I also you know you know it, it, it's it's I mean it's and, and you know look I mean in I also wanted Dolores to have a very big um a big arc in the movie and to have her own parallel storyline and um and sort of obviously that takes up screen time and sort of pages and a screenplay and you've you, you've, you've only got so much sort of screen real estate right and so I think you know I think sort of where Wayland landed if he if he'd started in a more extreme place I think you know with everything else the screenplay is doing it would have been very hard to get him to where he is by the end of the movie so I you know I think it's not but it's you know look it's not I it's something that I don't necessarily you know that's where we landed and I think a sort of longer version you know a longer version of this story or a sort of more you know you know you could get into some of these issues a bit more deeply and and you know and it was very hard for me to kind of to find the, the right balance for Wayland and I weighed it up a lot and I spoke to a lot of people and that's kind of where I landed but um but it's you know in a more expanded version of this story would allow you to get into that more deeply and I think more profoundly which I you know which I and in some ways I regret that I wasn't able to because it's you know as you you know it's a question that occurred to you right and kind of I think you want to know I think some people sort of you know I think I think that it, it, it creates a question mark, I think. And I hope it's not sort of too profound of a question. I hope that kind of it resolves itself by the end. But I think, you know, I think that there is a limit to the kind of, there is a limit to the sort of um, form, right? You know, you, you tell a story in a hundred pages and um, you have to, you, you know, to, and already I think structurally the film is doing a lot, you know, by kind of interweaving Wayland and Dolores' stories and also the dream stories. So, you know, Wayland's backstory gets lost a little bit, you know, not lost, but kind of, you know, alluded alluded to, but it's the, you know, it's really the future that's, it's really the shared history that he and Dolores have that we focus on and the kind of their nostalgia for the past that they never kind of were able to kind of realize so it's their shared history that we focus on rather than maybe their individual histories. And then, and then really it's a film about embracing the future because it's a, you know, uh, you know, I felt when I was writing this film in 2016, that there was a sort of sense of kind of toxic 
nostalgia percolating everywhere you know in my native in my UK native home UK where you know Brexit had just happened and people were talking about returning to the good old days when everything was great and Britain was great and you know similar sentiments you know here as well and kind of um you know I I, I thought well you know nostalgia can be very meaningful and beautiful and it can sort of evoke a sense of melancholy and loss for something that that's no longer with us but but it can also become toxic and I, I you know and it can also stop us seeing what's right in front of us and you know the 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 the, the possibilities that we have if we embrace the future and we embrace change and kind of that's what the children represent really in the movie and that's ultimately the the direction that Wayland goes in he changes um and I think you know I think that I think it's a very profound change for him and um and he it's it, it he becomes interestingly I think a caregiver um you know, which I think for, for, for the type of man that he is and the type of masculinity that he represents, I think is quite a, a, a profound thing. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, I actually like how the children, the three children sort of challenge him and challenge who he is. And there's a great tension for us, the audience, as we figure out how he's going to react to each child because they're each a challenge in a different way. I mean, there's one child who's a mixed race, which is, you know, sort of raises his eyebrow. And there's one child who I don't think you ever put a label on it, but I think you could say is trans um, or is gender non-fluid or, you know, that's sort of something that is to be determined. Yeah, yeah. Park, I mean, it, you know. Gender Parker, fluid, I meant. I, you know, yeah, we say, so Parker who plays Denim is, is non-binary kind of um, in real life. And in the film, I mean, obviously they, that family doesn't necessarily have the vocabulary to, to name um, to put a name to it, I mean, Dolores just says that Denim likes wearing girls' clothes, um, and you know, you know, I don't, I don't think Denim um, themselves have have a kind of, um, you know, have have a have a have a way of describing um, their identity yet. But but you know, I think I think you know, yeah, gender non-conforming or non-binary is kind of where we landed for that character. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I really like how you handled it, and I thought it was realistic and it might have just rung a little false if at the end of it you know he's walking in a pride parade with a child or something it might have just felt like that's a, a huge leap for this guy to make um but he does love and accept everybody in the family which is beautiful in itself yeah no i, and I think even you know it's funny i mean even with the sort of trans um woman character Coral right at the end of the movie in, in the dive bar where he meets um, with the whole family meet a, a, a trans woman who's the hostess I suppose you call her in the in the dive bar the mermaid bar at the end of the movie you see that again on his face you see that he's not entirely comfortable um, um, so yeah he but he does fully fully accept and love this child I mean I think the sort of you know I think that the kind of journey that the the, that um, Wayland and the younger child um, Denham go on is, is you know, one of the one of the most touching of the film. You know, where where you know where Denham says, you know, can I call you dad? And um, and you know, that's a real moment between them. And he 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 doesn't, you know, he, re he 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 by the end, I think that that would have a, I mean, that does have a different answer at the end, right? But it, but the first time that question gets asked, the answer is no. So yeah, yeah. Um, what should I have asked that I haven't asked? If you, if you put your reporter hat on, <laughs> back on. Ooh. Um, 
fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could say nothing. We're good. <laughs> no, no. I, I, um, well, I mean, I think, look, I think I'm very proud of having, um, on a film like this, um, I think actors are just so important. Um, and um, I think, you know, we had several, we had several, like finding the kids was kind of key to, to, to doing, to pulling off this film and this, this family, making this family feel like a real family. And that was a challenge because we, um, we were casting local, the only, you know, we brought Pablo and Jenna in, but, but everyone else had to be a local hire because of, um, for, for various reasons. Um, and so our search for the kids was limited to sort of in and around Portland. Um, wow. So, and how, yeah, how did we find the kids was kind of a fun, you know, story. I mean, we sort of, you know, I took, you know, my, uh, Kevin and Francesca who produced the movie had worked with Sean on the, on the Florida project. And I knew that Sean on that film had kind of, gone around sort of you know grocery stores and kind of walmarts and kind of just like looked for you know just like kind of done a real sort of you know ground up search for the children in the so I did the same thing I mean I we we, we kind of just would go to sort of theater camps summer fairs you know anywhere where people congregate um, and children congregate and just kind of you know hand out hand out flyers and say we're making a movie we're looking for three newcomers and uh, you know, you can spot a sort of charismatic child who's a leader from from a distance. You can kind of see that they have a sort of quality that makes people pay attention to them. And so, you know, so we we did a lot of outreach like that, and um, and you know, we're really able to we're really lucky to find um, you know to find the actors that we did. You know, especially you know, and two of the you know two of the actors were sort of bigger challenges to cast. You know, um, Dodger is 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 biracial and um, um you know casting you know or, or as i said oregon is a very white state and so so there was a sort of smaller pool of you know young um biracial actors to to draw from um there and and then obviously i wanted to, i wanted the denim character to 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 be a child a, a child that truly was non-binary and so that but we got we got very lucky and um, I'm very glad that, you know, that we were able to, I'm, I'm just so proud of these kids. I mean, they'd never acted before this movie. Um, the two younger ones hadn't acted at all. So Amelia, who plays Perry, and Parker, who plays Denham, had never acted at all. And um, Chancellor, who plays Dodger, had done a little bit of kind of modelling and catalogue modelling and that kind of thing and a few commercials, but nothing really dramatic or narrative based. And so, you know, just kind of working with the kids to sort of, you know, we worked with the kids um, for, for many weeks before going into production, just kind of doing little workshops with them, playing games and kind of just really, you know, getting them to imagine. And children have wonderful imaginations, so this isn't hard, but just kind of getting them to imagine their lives as these characters and getting them to kind of, you know, being able to switch between being themselves and being, you know, Dodger and Perry and Denim and imagining, you know, like, for example, with Amelia, we had her imagine what her previous birthdays had been like. So, you know, why was she so hurt during this birthday party that happens in the film where she doesn't get the presents that she wants? And, and we really, you know, she was really very quickly able to kind of imagine 
you know, another birthday in which she'd been disappointed and other times her mother had disappointed her and she was able to, and that became very alive for her and her imagination very quickly. And, you know, kids just have the best imaginations and they're, so they are able to, if they're able to imagine something, they're able to have a sort of authentic and real reaction to it. Um, so we kind of, we worked with the kids beforehand, got them sort of used to each other, you know, they, they bonded and Chancellor was very much a big brother to the other two and they really looked up to him to him and so mm. that's really important I think to, to kind of bond them as a little sibling unit and um and they were you know they had fun with each other they had each other on set you know a set can be really intimidating for children all these people and kind of if you've never you know been in that kind of situation before you've never been in front of a camera before but they they kind of I think it was a really I think it was a good experience for them and I think they feel it was um, an important life experience for them and I'm proud of that it's not always easy to do on a small film like ours you know where we're really stretched for resources but I think we we did that um well I think that was something we did well and I'm really happy about that and you know really part of that was Pablo and Jenna really helping as well because they 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 helped me with the actors Jenna was a with the child actors Jenna was a child actor herself and kind of you know understood from her own experience what these kids were going through and kind of really mentored them and um, encouraged them to sort of be questioning on set and not just kind of not just sort of you know absorb information and absorb directives and commands and direction from me but to ask questions and to actively engage in the process and she encouraged them to do that which I think was a great piece of advice and and she um, you know in the scene where Parker for example has to um, has to um, has to spit. Denim has to spit. <laughs> that, that scene where you know the that scene where Parker sort of spits at spits at Jenna um, because her character Dolores is is trying to trying to force their character Denim into pants and they don't want to wear pants. Um, that was obviously a really hard scene for a for a polite, lovely child to execute. <laughs> to spit at an adult it's not something you ever do in real life and so but Jenna made it really fun she turned it she 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 saw the challenge and she taught, taught turned it into a game and she you know really she walked um Parker through that scene and she said well you know let me see how much spit you have is that all you have for me and she turned, she really turned it into a game and kind of encouraged them to sort of you know swill the spit around in their mouth collect it spit it out and it was really you know she made it fun and I think it became less taboo. She made, she, you know, the taboo just went away and, and, you know, we were able to do that scene. And so, and equally, you know, Pablo, I think in the scene, you know, the scene that Chancellor was really worried about was the, um, the scene where, where, you know, where he punches Wayland. And, um, and again, Pablo was so instrumental to kind of, he really, you know, even when the camera was on Chancellor, he really, he really stayed on and he he really you know sometimes you know actors give a little bit less when the cameras are not on them because they sort of save themselves for their coverage but you know Pablo gave a hundred percent even when the camera was doing Chancellor's coverage so that he could get Chancellor to where Chancellor needed to be so that Chancellor could get worked up and deliver mm -hmm. that function and, and he, he he you know you know I think in this case you really see that acting is reacting and he gave chancellor something to react off of um, and really sort of kept his performance intense and then chancellor saw that Wayland did that and he understood that kind of principle of sort of generosity and being a scene partner and he reciprocated and did the same for for Pablo which was really sweet I thought mm. well your question is my favorite question <laughs>
I'm just so proud of the kids and I'm kind of want to sort of shine the light on them and you know they're, they're very young to know what they want to do with their lives but I do think that they have you know there's just something I, I'm I'm proud of them I think they're really talented so yeah I'm I'm shocked they weren't professional actors before this they're they're all really excellent I mean, the entire cast is really excellent but you know special special accolades for them because they're kids they just did an amazing job yeah I'm very proud of them um yeah, they're just ordinary kids leading ordinary lives. And I don't, I mean, I don't think they've really, they're, um, a couple of them, are Ch Chancellor and Amelia are coming to Tribeca, which is great. Um, cool. Parker is not vaccinated yet, so isn't traveling, which is um, sad. Um, and we had all, they thought they'd all been so excited last year to come to Tribeca, they all had their outfits picked. So um, oh. the saddest thing about missing Tribeca was kind of missing that moment for them, which I was, I was so sad for them. That was the thing that, that kind of, but we did a little Zoom party on the day that I, Tribeca premiere would have been and it was it was nice we played acting games and we reminisced about the film and you know I mean you know two years is a long time in the life of a child and yeah. you know it feels like forever ago that we shot the film and so, <laughs> I mean you know to them it's like almost another life and they've been they've been waiting and waiting it's a long time it's a long time for them to wait they're young so uh, what's next and I always hate to say what's next for you because I don't want to take away from you should be enjoying and really celebrating this moment that you had to wait a year for and also all the time making the film. Um, so I guess my first question is, are you taking a minute and enjoying this? And the next question is what's next? Um, I am enjoying it. I'm enjoying meeting other filmmakers. Um, um, I'm, I'm nervous. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a very neurotic filmmaker. <laughs> so I, you know, it's always nerve wracking for me to kind of, you know let go and lose control of a project and let other people kind of you know interpret it as they will not not necessarily as I intended but as they you know it's just that you know that's always very nerve-wracking and so you know there's a degree of kind of nerves about the process of letting go and moving on but I think you know it's important and I'm, I am I think it is important to sort of start thinking about other projects and kind of it's part of the process of letting go of this one is thinking about what the next one might be so um yeah, so I'm, I'm working on several projects right now, all very varied. I think I do have a kind of, um, I do have quite a breadth of stuff I'm interested in. I think I have quite a sort of, um, I think as you can tell in Lorelei, I don't like to be sort of restricted by genre or, you know, genre expectations. So even though obviously Lorelei is quite grounded and, you know, set in, set in a very sort of specific local you know environment and community that there is a that the, the film kind of expands that at points and kind of breaks away from the expectations of that genre you know with the dream stuff mostly but also the ending of the film which kind of veers off a bit into you know more magical realism or something like that so I, I think I like mixing up genres I find it very sort of stimulating as a filmmaker and kind of um, you know I like moving between genres but I also you know, in terms of different films, but I also like kind of within the within a film, doing something that that you know that has elements of a couple of different genres. So you know, for example, I'm doing a coming of age. I've I've written um, a coming of age um, story that's a sort of road trip story, uh, a coming of age road trip story, but that's also a story about AI. So oh, cool. Um, yeah. So it's kind of so I. So it feels um, you know, and, and I like that because I think you kind of you 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 have certain knowing you know having a footing in genre I think as a viewer allows you to know 
you know, to know a little bit of where you're at, you kind of have certain, you have your footing and it's like going on a roller coaster ride, you're going on this journey, but you kind of, because you, you're in a sort of specific genre, you kind of, you're not confused, you have certain expectations and that kind of makes you feel grounded as a viewer. And I like that about genre um, rather than sort of straight dramas, for example. But um, but also, you know, I, I like sort of upending that and kind of, you know, surprising, you know, surprising, you know, I just think there's nothing worse than knowing where a film is going and kind of, you know, in just sort of painting by numbers. So I, you know, I love it. And the films I love, I mean, you always make films in the image of the films that you love. And so, and it's like a dialogue with the filmmakers that have inspired you. And so the films I love all kind of do something like that or a version of that. So, um, so I've got a couple of sci-fis and I'm working on and then a couple of dramas, including a historic one. And so, yeah, quite varied, but nothing, yeah, Lorelei is, is, I think, I don't have anything like Lorelei. Lorelei is its own sort of unique thing, I think. And it kind of, the circumstances in which it happened and how we got the funding and how we shot it sort of all led to it being the thing that it is. And the screening is uh, Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. I hope that's amazing. I'm sure it will be. Cross your fingers for no rain because it's been a bit, the weather's been a bit stormy in New York and um, um, yeah. And the odd, like I was at a Q&A the other night for Dr. Death, which is um, the new, uh, yeah. Uh, there was a part, it was a part, uh, the first episode of that. I was a Q&A with all the stars, Christian Slater and all the others. And and people were leaving, even though that Q&A was, ha- was to come, you know, they just, you know, because it was raining and it was, you know, people were getting soaked. So oh, man. Um, it's tough. I mean, outdoor screenings, you, you carry, it carries that risk, right? Um, so I'm just, you know, a few days ago, it was projected to be rain on Saturday. Now it looks okay, but we'll see. I mean, it's it's a bit, you know, it's it's nerve wracking. I mean, our, our actors are coming. It's the first time they'll, they will have attended a physical screening of the film. So I want it to be a, like a nice experience for them. So I'm just hoping it kind of all goes smoothly, but you can't, as you know, in filmmaking, you can never control the weather. And it's just, it's, you're always at the mercy of the weather. And now, even in the you know screening of this film, we're at the mercy of the weather. So. Oh God, I really hope you get good weather. I mean, it's Pacific Northwest themed, right? I mean, you can just say, look, we brought this in on purpose. You guys get- I love that, I love it. That's so cool. Um, yeah, we brought the weather for you to make the experience more real. It's funny when we shot the film, we got much less rain than we wanted. It was a very fine <laughs> fall and we did not expect to have that number of sunny days. We expected more sort of misty, gloomy days. Um, and the DP and I were quite disappointed. Um, <laughs> it just, it was sunnier than we wanted. But then I think ultimately, you know, looking at the kind of, cause we imagined it sort of mysterious blue green mist and the whole thing, but, but ultimately I think the sunny scenes are nice cause they give it a sort of optimism that I think actually, I didn't want the film to be gloomy and kind of, you know, desaturated that look that sort of sometimes these kinds of films have. I wanted it to sort of be, you know, a bit more vibrant and a bit more, saturated in terms of the colors and and so actually I think the sunny you know the sprinkling of sunny days in it really was nice because although unintended it kind of I think helped kind of create a sense of contrast you know I mean I you know and I think as I was saying you know it's not it's not all you know it's not all uplift and it's not all gloom it's somewhere in the middle and I think that the kind of actually the the mixed bag we got with the weather helped reinforce that so I love the pops of color and the flashes of color. I mean, there's that like Gus Van Sant look that's very cool of all of his, you know, Pacific Northwest movies. But then you have that sort of Deborah Granick, Leave No Trace has like so, so much, I don't know if you've even seen that, but the the vibrancy yeah. of it, I love that movie. 
just the greenery that pops through. It's so lush and I don't know, kind of life affirming. I mean, there'll be moments in your movie where, going, oh, things are getting a little grim, but then they'll just get like that little pop as they're riding motorcycles or something. And you're like, all right, this is, there's still beauty in their lives. Yeah. And in our lookbook for the film, um, every, everything kind of, you know, the, the sort of founding principle of the lookbook, which kind of told all the departments, you know, the rules of the film, the visual rules of the film. You know, we just had this principle of contrast that it would not be exclusively one thing or the other, but that you would have, you know, a prevailing mood, but that then you would you would sort of. So if something was very blue, you would have some warmth. You'd still have some warmth in the frame. Or if something, you know, if something were very, you know, if something, you know, if you show a, a, a scene of pop deprivation or dilapidation, that there would be something in the frame also that would show that that the that there was love and care there as well, you know? And so, you know, so for example, you know, I mean, I think you see in Dolores's house, you know, you, you see that she has unpaid bills stuck to the refrigerator, but she also has pictures that the kids drew stuck to the refrigerator. And so, you know, you have that kind of contrast and you see that, you know, there is neglect to some extent, but there is also a great deal of love. And I think, you know, I think that principle of contrast sort of is something that we, that we thought about for everything in this film. No, I, I actually love that. And that's something I thought about a lot that, you know, we have a pretty, we have a pretty young child and the happiest moments in your life are like the house is dirty. It's chaotic. It's loud. Everything's a total mess. And he does, he just did like the cutest thing and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> so it's like, you got, the, you got that mix. Like, I don't think you get the most joy when everything is perfectly put away and arranged like the messy stuff is sometimes the best stuff. I love that. How old is your kid? Oh, he's one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fun. Yeah. Mobile. That's, that's a very cute age, right? He's, it's very cute. He's walking around and surprises us constantly. So yeah, but the house is a total mess all the time. Like there's always toys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, our house is a, total mess too and our production designer that house actually was an abandoned house it was a boarded up house there was nothing in it um and we drove past it and thought it you know looked great and kind of persuaded the owners to let us in for a month and and, and so everything in that house was recreated by our by marissa Leguizamon, our production designer and our and her team and kind of so they they dressed the house they filled every drawer with junk even if you didn't open it or not you opened it or not so that the actors would have the ability to open a drawer even if, if they wanted to in a scene that there would be something in there and so you know to create that density of kind of you know those layers of production design um those layers of production design where you don't necessarily kind of even see it on screen but the actors know they can open a drawer they know they can do that in their blocking um, but you know, to do that on a small budget like ours, I think was incredible. And they, they, they work so hard and, you know, they kind of, um, you know, they, they, they were resourceful. They did Craigslist, they did thrift stores, they did, you know, they really did a really wide search and to be able to control the color palette of the film as well on a budget where you can't necessarily paint things the shape that you want them to kind of, you know, but they were really sort of super resourceful and kind of you know, creating that density of sort of production design and that texture, but also doing it within the color palette of the film, you know, I think was, was so I feel, you know, I had a great, great visual, you know, great DP, great, great production designer working on this. It kind of really helped us achieve all of that. So, um, wow. It's incredible. It feels like a real house. That's really cool. 
No, it is really cool. Yeah, I know it does. Um, I actually, I actually think I walked onto the set and I, I actually got tearful because it felt, it felt like something that, it, it was a very, it was an incredible moment because I had only seen that house empty and there's always a, you know, there's always an anxiety about, you know, that that house is another character in the film. And so it took to walk onto the set and see it transformed was, was a couple of days before we started shooting was an incredible moment. And yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I just really appreciate it and really enjoyed the movie and I hope things go great on Saturday and no rain. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a lovely um, rest of your day. That was the wonderful Sabrina Doyle, writer and director of Lorelei. I think you're going to hear a lot more about her films in the next few years. And if you aren't able to catch Lorelei at Tribeca, it will be out on VOD and in theaters this summer. So keep an eye out. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. You can find our stories all the time at moviemaker.com. The best way to make sure you catch everything we do is to sign up for our newsletter at moviemaker.com slash newsletter. And if you sign up for the newsletter now, you're going to be entered to win an Indiana Jones four-disc UHD Blu-ray set. It is awesome. So do that, moviemaker.com slash newsletter. If you like the worst case scenario, you get a bunch of stories that we wrote and a bunch of podcasts that we produce and things like that. If you're listening to this, you're looking for another podcast, may I recommend Low Key, in which myself and Keith Denny and Aaron Lanton talk every week about pop culture. Uh, I think you'll like it. The latest episode is about Loki, so it's Low Key, Loki. Uh, those guys are so professional that at no point do we make any jokes about that. You can also check out The Industry, produced by Dan Delgado, where he does a deep dive every episode into the strangest, most wondrous, weirdest decisions ever made in Hollywood. It is tremendously entertaining. And if you like this and you want to throw us some stars on Apple or you want to recommend it to a friend or whatever, I would be super grateful. Thanks so much for listening. I hope we see you next episode when our guest will be Eliza Schlesinger. <laughs>